Our scripture reading this morning before Matt comes is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we will read verses 11 through 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people, but we ourselves are well known to God, and I hope that we are also well known to your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast in outward appearance and not in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for the one who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we no longer know him in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Look, new things have come into being. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God for our sake God made the one who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. If I haven't met you, my name is Matt. We are going to continue um, the series that we've been in for the last several weeks. Leslie Newbegin, the British theologian and missiologist, once said, an unmissionary church and an unchurchly mission are both, from the standpoint of the gospel, absurdities. So the church, and, and we might think the global church, of course, but also um, small local expressions of the church, like this one, the church cannot be understood apart from mission. It is an absurdity. Likewise, mission can't be understood in a way that is disconnected from the church, the body of Christ. The two are inseparable. With that in mind, any conversation about the purpose of the church, so that's what we've been talking about over the course of the last month or so. Any conversation about the purpose of the church at large or the purpose of a small local expression of the global church must incorporate mission as a guiding principle. We are indeed on mission together. So our purpose statement as a congregation puts it like this. We, we seek to participate in the restorative work of God and one way we do that is by engaging in our surrounding culture. So today we turn to the missional component of the church. Now that statement that we've just read continues like this. So engaging in our surrounding culture. Practicing the way of Jesus, we care deeply about serving with generosity, 
whole persons and whole societies, starting with the people we meet in our everyday lives. Just as we've received God's grace and forgiveness, we seek to extend that grace to other people as we follow Jesus' example of moving beyond the church walls into the real communities where we live and work. We want to engage the world, the people around us. And this isn't just a desire that, that we have come up with. This is actually an instruction that Jesus himself has left us. Near the end of John's gospel, just after the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples. And one of the things he says to them is this, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. One of the final things Jesus says to his followers, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. We are a sent people. So entering God's family, which we've been talking about over the last several weeks, is not adopting a hunkering down mentality, building walls or disengaging, cloistering ourselves away from the world if and when that world stands opposed to our faith. No, we are always sent out to engage the world around us. Christian faith is not, it can never be only a private endeavor. We considered this last week in the context of community. So we are, as a people, not only pursuing a personal, dynamic relationship with Jesus, that is certainly a part of our faith, but we are also welcomed into a family, into the community gathered around Christ. Moreover, our faith cannot be only a privatized spirituality because we are not only welcomed into a family, into a community, but we are also sent out, sent into our neighborhoods, our communities, even the world around us. What is the model that Jesus offers us? So he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. If you look back at the beginning of John's gospel, we find the model he presents. We looked at this at the beginning of the month, but verse 14, this is how John puts it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So at the end of John's gospel, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. At the beginning of John's gospel, we get a little bit of a picture into the nature of Christ's mission. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrased this. He said, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. That is the model presented for us. It is one of incarnational presence. As he was sent into the neighborhood, we too are sent into our neighborhoods. 
into our social circles, into our world. We have been sent on mission. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the church as a family. Really, we've talked about that a bit over the last three weeks, but we looked at some of the places where Jesus radically reimagines what the community gathered around him is, and it is a family. Jesus understands his family in terms of those who do his will, and it is an ever-expanding family. Along those lines, N.T. Wright has described the church like this. We've considered this description or definition before, but I think it's helpful to revisit. He said, the church is the single, multi-ethnic family promised by the creator God to Abraham. It was brought into being through Israel's Messiah, Jesus. It was energized by God's spirit, and it was called to bring the transformative news of God's rescuing justice to the whole creation. I love that description. A single multi-ethnic family, an ever-expanding family God promises to create out of Abraham. Now maybe as you read that, you're thinking, well, I'm not so sure about that because I've read parts of the Old Testament. And at times, it seems fairly exclusive ethnically and otherwise. I mean, we find the people of God instructed in ways like this, be holy as I am holy, separate from the pagans among you. At times, get rid of these folks, even kill these enemies. But I would contend that that was never the goal. In fact, we find hints at this even in the Old Testament itself. Just one small example, we find the prophet in Isaiah 49 talking about the servant of the Lord who is going to bring restoration to Israel. But tucked away in that talk about the salvation and restoration being brought to Israel, he also says this, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth single, multi-ethnic family, an ever-expanding family. We see it also in, in stories that are tucked away, stories like Ruth, a foreign woman who is not only a virtuous and heroic example for us, but also important in the big picture of redemptive history. She has a role to play in the coming Messiah. We see it in other small stories that are easy to overlook and miss, like the story about Naaman, a foreign military official who is, at least in some ways, presumably responsible for the subjugation of the Jewish people. And then we get to a story in 2 Kings chapter 5, and, and what do we see? Well, we see Yahweh's prophet bringing healing bringing restoration to this foreign military leader who was in many ways an enemy. A single multi-ethnic family was always the goal. I believe that is accomplished in Jesus Christ and through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Now in Jesus, what was hinted at in the Hebrew scriptures consistently, now that has become for us the new normal. The Ruths of 
the world, no, no longer outsiders, welcomed in. That is business as usual. Naaman, a foreign military leader, healed, restored by Yahweh, that is the new normal. And that sort of work of restoration didn't end when Jesus ascends. No, it continues through the body, through the church. So our mission is to not only gather around Christ, but then to disperse and bring that transformative news of God's rescuing justice, to bring that news of God's renewal and restoration for all, to bring that into the world. So as the church, as a small local expression of the church, we are on mission, and it is a mission of participation. If we could sum up everything we want to do and be, it might be this, to be a people who are joining God's work of restoration, to join this great project of Christ's renewal for all, to bear witness to that work of restoration and renewal, and to enact it in the small ways in which we can. So the image that we looked at last week, the church as a body, perhaps that points to more than just our, the, the unity that we experience in our diversity. That is certainly the, perhaps the primary point, but I wonder if it could also get at the fact that we are not just waiting idly for the age to come, but we are springing into action. Even as our bodies spring into action in a variety of ways, we are working, acting to bear witness to this new reality we have become a part of. So let's take our attention to our scripture reading from a few minutes ago, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we seek to persuade others. So it's a mission, at least in some degree, a mission of persuasion. At the end of that, he says, we implore others, be reconciled to God. At this point, I, I want to note, I, I think this is a critical acknowledgement, that we are not trying to persuade others with the tactics of something like a multi-level marketing company, you know, using a constant barrage of information or high-pressure sales pitch. We, we are on mission to persuade others, be reconciled to God, but we do not force that. We cannot force it. That is not our mission. Verse 14, we are compelled by the love of Christ. Compelled by Christ's love, we seek to persuade. If we jump down to verse 20, we are, therefore, he says, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Christ's ambassadors. This is the image Paul seems to want his audience to think about in relation to the church's mission, ambassadors of Christ. So think of ambassadors in government. In that context, an ambassador is a 
diplomat sent by a country or another governing body as an official representative of that country in a foreign land. They typically represent the highest level of government to a foreign nation, and as such, they function as a representative, even offering a little piece of home, a little taste of home in a distant land. In a similar way, as Christ's ambassadors, we represent Christ and his kingdom to the world around us. At their best, then, perhaps we could say individual congregations Church communities might function a little bit like embassies. You can hopefully step inside, interact with the ambassadors there, and get a little taste of what it's like to be in the kingdom of God if we are living into our identity. Now, there's another characteristic of the role of ambassadors that I think is probably helpful for this conversation. And that is this, that ambassadors are always sent. They're sent to live in foreign lands among the people. As a result, they must learn how to do so with grace and humility. They must understand the people and live at peace with these folks. Similarly, as ambassadors of Jesus, an embassy for us or a church for us isn't a place we seek to withdraw from people. No, it's a place that hopefully positions us to where we can live among the people. Ambassadors of Christ, I would suggest, are nothing if not resident aliens, living among the people, not withdrawing, but engaging culture, engaging people we come into contact with, so that our presence might be more meaningful in the end. We cannot live into this part of our identity or our mission. We cannot be Christ's ambassadors if we aren't actually in relationship with folks who aren't a part of the body of Christ. Now, we can witness if witnessing is reduced to something like passing out tracts or preaching on a street corner. We can do that without relationship, but we cannot be ambassadors without engaging people where they are, without actually meeting folks and learning who they are, being interested in who they actually are and what their lives are like. That is a requirement if we ever hope to effectively share the person of Jesus. Because as ambassadors, we aren't just verbally proclaiming a message whether people want to hear it or not. Our mission is not in, uh, convert or else. No, we are bearing witness to the kingdom of Christ, seeking to demonstrate with our lives the new way that Jesus has welcomed us into and offering an invitation into that reality. There was, there was a practice during the Middle Ages where some Christians were, were trying to force conversion on Muslims and Jews to the point where there were instances of 
people kidnapping children in the middle of the night and, and baptizing them with, I laugh, but I shouldn't, but with, with the hope or the thought, this is saving their soul. And, and you know, there were leaders like Thomas Aquinas who rebuked the practice, saying, first of all, that's not the church's custom. What is more, even if it were the church's custom, it is wrong. And it's not even effective at spreading the gospel. Even if we take sort of an ends-justify-the-means approach to mission, that is not helpful. That is not helping us reach our goal. And so maybe we could laugh it off because it's so ridiculous, or, or maybe we are rightly disgusted by a practice like that. But I think there might be for us a reminder in that historical evaluation that this is not our mission. We aren't trying to force people into the faith by scaring them to death or by cutting them off from friendship until they accept Christ. And maybe some of those extreme tactics, maybe they come from a good, though terribly misguided place. You know, we understand that we have a task. We, we are on mission to spread the good news of God's kingdom. But we take that way too far when we think we are responsible for the life change. We are not. We aren't responsible for the success of God's mission. It is his mission. Yes, we participate in that mission. We seek to embody it, but we can't control it. Missiologist David Bosch put it like this. He said, inherent in the biblical understanding of mission is the conviction that the real author and sustainer of mission is God. It's not us. It's not our mission. God is the author and sustainer of mission. God alone brings life change. We simply announce it. We try to demonstrate it in the ways we can, living into this alternative way to live life. But that is how we are ministers of reconciliation. Jensen Metcalf put it this way. He said, we point to Christ's glory and let his glory take care of itself. We point to Christ's glory and let that take care of itself. Now, this is who we are. We are ministers of reconciliation. We are ambassadors. It's not just something we do. It's not an activity we occasionally practice if and when we feel like it. it it's who we are. And if that's the case, then bearing witness to the kingdom of Christ Bearing witness to the good news, the gospel, doesn't only take place when we share propositional truths about Jesus. I think it does happen then, but not only then. I think it can and does occur in all aspects of life. It happens in ways that are as simple as just going about our normal daily routines, attempting to live into this reality of Christ's kingdom. And at times, maybe people will see us respond in a tough situation, and maybe that will prompt a question. Why did you respond like that? How are you not erupting in anger when you're cut off in traffic, when you're mistreated? 
that might prompt questions because living the way Jesus has called us to live is indeed revolutionary. It's not normal. Living this new way to be human causes people to take notice. And don't just take that from me. We hear the words of Jesus himself. They will know we are disciples by our love for one another. We spent time earlier in the year, last year, we are in the beginning of the year. It was last year. We spent time walking through the beginning, uh, or through the Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember, near the beginning of that sermon in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells the disciples who have gathered around him, you are the salt of the earth. He goes on, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think living a life guided by the Sermon on the Mount, this can become for us the mode of mission. This is how we engage in mission. It is inspiring to see somebody forgive an enemy. It's attractive. It's also incredibly shocking. And it may just inspire curiosity or questions. Why are you like this? Why do you think that way? Why or how can you love in that way? I will say this, as we think about the mission of the church, attacking people we don't like or don't agree with on whatever issue, that is not attractive. That's not novel. It's not exceptional. That's business as usual. It's not shining light on the new life we have entered. Even if we are convinced our view is right, hating somebody else and trying to make them look like a fool for cultural points or to try to increase social capital, that is not ministering reconciliation. Heard somebody put it like this. I forget who it was, but they said it's a really curious evangelism strategy to despise the people you're trying to bring to Jesus. <laughs> it's true. And not only is it counterproductive strategically, but more importantly, it is unfaithful to the mission itself. I think this picture that we have presented in the Gospels, and even in Paul's discussion on being ambassadors of Christ, I think this helps shape how we minister reconciliation. It's not just when religious speech fills our mouths. It's not just when we invite somebody to a church service, although I think that's, uh, you know, a good thing to do. But it can happen anytime we engage with somebody Trusting that even in ordinary life circumstances, Christ is shining his light through us, through our words, through our actions, through our attitudes. So we return to the words of Paul. Compelled by love. Compelled by the love of Christ. We implore people, we invite people, be reconciled to God. This is our mission. So I invite you to join me in the pursuit of living into this reality, to live into this part of our purpose. 
It's not a privatized spirituality we are a part of for the personal benefits it brings, although it does bring great benefits. But we are ministers of reconciliation, compelled by the love of Christ, acting in love, bearing witness to God's kingdom, enacting God's kingdom in the small ways we can, and in so doing, encouraging others be reconciled to God. Would you stand as we gather around the table of our Lord, respond to what the Spirit of Christ might be stirring in our hearts and in our minds. If you're new or visiting, we invite you to join us at the table. The only requirement is a desire to meet with Jesus. Um, If you have that desire, please join us. I, I believe Jesus is with us in this moment ministering to us, nourishing our souls through this meal that we share together. So we'll make two lines down these center aisles here. When you come to the front, somebody will be here to to speak over you the words, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take and receive these elements on your own and then return to your seat. I'm going to say a prayer for us and then invite you to the table. Lord, we are grateful for the restoration that we have experienced, the new life that we find in you, this new mode of being. We ask that you would help us to have the courage and the strength to leave behind um, perceptions of our faith that limit it to the, the private sphere that you would open our eyes to recognize that all of life is an opportunity for your light to shine through us. Equip us, empower us. As we understand this is your mission we are participating in as we seek to bear witness to your kingdom. So now give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation, that we in the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?